Everybody ready for Christmas? Yeah. Are, now, are you really ready? Are you glad it's here or are you ready? See, two different questions, right? So you're glad it's here, but not quite ready. Anybody else like me, though, just still sitting around, kind of my head spinning, thinking, how is this decent the first Sunday in December? I mean, I felt like it was just January yesterday, you know. But here we sit, first Sunday of Advent, and we're kicking off a new series that we're calling Fear Not. Now, when I think of fear... There's only one thing that comes to my mind usually right away, and that is the show Fear Factor. Oh, yeah. Anybody remember that? Um, I, was, I had to look this up because I couldn't quite remember when it was on television, but it was on NBC from 2001 to 2006. So not just yesterday. It was 20 years ago. Yeah. Depressing, right? Uh -huh. 20 years ago when this show started. Now, it was brought back by MTV in 2011 and 12 with a different host. But how many of you say, I knew Fear Factor, I watched Fear Factor? How many of you would admit that? How many of you would say, never watched it, wasn't my thing? Okay, see a few of those hands too. So, let me, for those of you who know the show, let me just do a quick recap to remind you what this was. It was a stunt or dare game show where you would have six people, usually three men, three women, and they were pitted against each other in a variety of stunts to win the grand prize. And evidently, because it was 20 years ago, the grand prize wasn't much. It was only $50,000, you know? We didn't get the big grand prizes until Survivor and Amazing Race and all that. $50,000. Now, how many of you would say, I would do that show? Really? How many of you would say, you couldn't, 50,000 isn't enough and a million's not enough for me to go on that? There you go, those are my people right there. I found this show to be much more gross factor than fear factor, to be honest. I mean, they, you know, it was kind of crazy. But let me, the, the, you had three stunts in the show. The opening stunts, you know, could be something like jumping from one building to another or hanging from a helicopter or something like that. You know, something crazy like that. I could do that. That's not too big. The second stunt would always be a bit more of a mental challenge where you might have to eat things like various animal parts, uh, live bugs, blended concoctions. Uh, you might have animal stunts there where you would have to put your head in a box with stuff and, you know, maybe have animals put on your body, things like that, snakes and worms. Or this is just where the gross stuff happened, like, you know, you would have to retrieve objects, gross objects, in disgusting substances. Like, I think there was one where you had to retrieve, like, chicken feet uh, out of a, a box of rats or something like that. So put your face in a, with your mouth. You had to, yeah, yeah gross, right? The last one uh, would be, uh, or there could be a mental challenge in here as well, which could be an endurance or pain test, like, you know, walking barefoot on glass, stuff like that, or get uh, a tattoo. There was even a, a one time that uh, you had to walk a runway completely nude in front of an audience. Okay. Yeah. I wouldn't want to be on the runway or in the crowd just for the... I mean, give me, give me the snakes. The final stunt would be an extreme stunt from like an action movie, you know, involving heights or water. I'm not a water guy, so I wouldn't have that one. Actual live examples of this, okay? I've just mentioned, get in a box full of chicken feet. You have rats dumped on them, your partner, and then you would have to retrieve 10 chicken feet from the box using only your mouths and spit them into a bucket while rats are all around you. Anybody willing to do that? Oh, look at you, Lee Wheelock. I see that hand. They had one where you were put in a body bag, 
shoved into a morgue drawer, and then the bag was full of crickets, red worms, super worms, stink beetles, and hissing cockroaches. And you were left in the, oh, and you had padlocks on it. And somehow in the body bag, you had to find the locks and the keys and unlock yourself. Anybody signing up to go in the morgue drawer? I see that hand right there, Liza. Yeah. Uh, there was one where your arm was pierced 10 times, 10 needles, with each needle getting progressively bigger. Anybody for that one? Oh, man, some of you people are crazy. Um, Like I said, $50,000 seems like a small price compared to the absolutely crazy things that you had to do. And at the end of the show, the person won, and Joe Rogan back in the early 2000s would say what? He would say, fear was not a factor for you. Is that ever true for us, though? When we think about fear, anxiety, you know, it's one thing to watch others willingly put themselves in a situation, but for most of us, do we need help getting to fear? No. Do we need any help getting to anxiety? No, I don't need a morgue box with hissing cockroaches to make me get there. I mean, a quick look at the morning news, social media. Why do we do this to ourselves? I don't know. But we're immediately transported to Fearville, aren't we? Inflation, interest rates are rising. There's wars around the world, and the the Ukrainian and Russian war continues on, and the ceasefire between Israel and Hamas is broken. God help us, there's a presidential election cycle going on. Artificial intelligence. Oh, well, this is fun. Those of us that watched Terminator originally, I mean, any of us kind of concerned about this? I mean, seriously, John Connor's looking at us right now going, stop it, stop it. Canadian wildfires, Hawaiian wildfires, indictments on both sides of the aisle, 21 days without a Speaker of the House of Representatives. And on top of all that, Taylor Swift is now dating Travis Kelsey. I mean, seriously, we have enough in our life and in our world for fear and anxiety. Our blood pressure rises. We might get snippy with people in our lives or the people at the checkout. I mean, Anybody gone Christmas shopping yet to one of the stores and feel your anger and fear and all these things rising? So right now, here's what I want us to do. Everybody take a deep breath. And I want you to know it's going to be okay. (laughs) I know that we are inundated with all these things around us. And you come to church, and really the last thing you really want church to be is a place to be reminded of that, isn't it? I I do. I remember I'm I'm going through, I think I've shared with you guys, I'm going through a thing right now called the Ignatian Exercises. It's something that's started by St. Ignatius, and it's a daily practice that I've been doing. And occasionally I'll wake up, and for whatever reason, I'll go to my phone and I'll hit the news app just to see the headlines. And I don't know why I do that. Because then I'll get to a quiet spot and I'll sit down and one of the questions it asks me every morning, it says, how are you coming to this time of prayer? How are you coming to this time of prayer? And I can without fail tell you that any morning that I have opened social media or the news app, I write panicked, anxiety, heartbeat uh, elevated, all these things. I feel distracted. I feel, you know, just all these things running around in my head. And I know when I come to church, I hope to find a break from that. So all this is really why we are ending this calendar year with this series that we're calling Fear Not. Because as we look at the world, 
there's plenty of things to make us anxious. There's plenty of things to make us fearful. And often, when we think about the Christmas story, what do we think about? Yeah, we think about the Christmas shopping and the crowds, the hustle and bustle, you know. And, but we also think about our perfect nativity sets, don't we? And we think about the Christmas tree. And oh, look at these stage decorations. Aren't they beautiful? And I love them. And I feel calm and peaceful when I see them. And, you know, with a crackling, put on a crackling fire in the background, sipping our hot chocolate. And, you know, before we know it, we find ourselves in the middle of our own Hallmark movie, you know. We think that way. We hope that way. We have that expectation. And I think sometimes we take that expectation of the perfect, peaceful Christmas, and we think that's how it's always been until we go to the Bible. And we begin to look at the Christmas story again, and we find that our picture-perfect Christmas really doesn't line up at all with what they experienced even back then. There were lots of reasons for them to have fear and anxiety, and it could be consuming, and yet what we'll find in the story is that God met them in their moment with the birth of the promised one, Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. So there's no surprises in this series. We're going to look every week at a part of the Christmas story, the narratives, and we're going to see why every one of these stories, every one of them has the words in some variation, fear not fear not. So let's dive in today and let's look at a little known person of the story. You might have heard of him. His name is Joseph. We find Joseph in Matthew's gospel, uh, chapter one. In fact, if you look at the first part of it, you find out, you find his genealogy and we figure out who he's a descendant from. And then we get to chapter one, verse 18 and look at what Matthew writes here in his gospel. He says, this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. And we can stop right there for just a moment. What's interesting is that we know very, very little about this guy named Joseph. I mean, he kind of has an important role, doesn't he? But we know very little. We know his genealogy is an ancestor of King David. And then we have to kind of infer some things based on what we see happening here, what he's planning to do. He's pledged to be married to Mary. And what you need to know is that this engagement wasn't like our engagements that just kind of you can get engaged and not engaged. This was a legally binding commitment that happened about a year before the actual wedding ceremony. I mean, all that was left to do once they had signed this document was to consummate the marriage. And even to the extent of if during this engagement period, one of the people died that was in that, they would consider you a widow or a widower. Fascinating, right? I mean, that's how legally binding this was. In fact, during the engagement, you could even refer to the other person as your husband or wife. That's how serious this commitment was. Now, we don't know much. Again, we don't know much about Joseph. We don't even know how old he was. Um, we assume that he was probably the age of guys at that time when they would get married. So maybe somewhere between the age of 15 and 18. Yeah, that's right. That's exciting, right? Um, some traditions want to believe that Mary was a perpetual virgin, that she never knew 
Joseph at all. So what they may assume is that Joseph was much older, more like a grandfather to Mary to step in than he was a husband. But we really have no indication that, that that's what Joseph was like. We do find, though, that he was a good man, that he was a good man. He was faithful to the law. He was a religious guy. That was important to him. And he must also have been kind and compassionate because how else would he come to this decision that we see that he's making right here? After learning Mary was pregnant, knowing it wasn't his, I mean, we, we know that, he made the logical assumption that she must have stepped out on him, that she must have found another guy and been with another man. The Old Testament penalty for unchastity before marriage in this engagement is considered adultery. And so you could technically stone somebody for this. Now, that didn't happen often, but divorce was the standard here. In fact, it wasn't even usually seen as an option. If this had happened, it would have been expected for Joseph to divorce Mary and put her away. Divorce for adultery, mandatory in ancient Judaism. So if you're Joseph, you find yourself in quite a pickle, right? You, got, you find yourself here going, what am I going to do? If you were in his spot, what would you do? Now, I look at Joseph and I'd say, I, I respect the dude because I don't know that Brent would have had the same reaction. I mean, you read it, right? He said, I'm going to divorce her quietly. But can you imagine his devastation, the betrayal he must have felt? I mean, we haven't had the angelic encounter yet. All he knows is this girl I'm engaged to. We've signed the contract. He's paid the money. He's paid half the price to wed her. And here she is pregnant and it's not mine. I might not be so gracious. I might be the one that wants to say, I think it's time to reinstitute the stoning. My pride's hurt. My ego's hurt. My, I'm embarrassed in the community. How could she do such a thing? Imagine, I, for me, I, I would expect anger, lots and lots of anger. And because of a patriarchal society, we have to remember that Joseph is in the driver's seat here. He's the one that's going to get to determine Mary's fate, the outcome, what's going to happen to her. Her life is in his hands. And really, he has a few options. He can divorce her publicly, which would exonerate him. It would show everybody, it's not mine. I'm going to put her away, so it's not mine. There'd be a public trial and Mary would be put to shame and he would be seen as the good guy, the righteous one, the faithful one. He could have done that. But instead of reacting in anger or reacting with some type of idea of retribution, he doesn't want to see her hurt. He doesn't want to see her put to shame. I really want to ask him why. With all the emotions that I'm sure he must have been feeling, why? Why did he not want her to be put to shame? And so when he thinks through this, he thinks, I'll just end the engagement. We'll do it quietly. So she is spared any more public disgrace than being an unwed mother at this time would have been. But even then, as I was studying, one commentary brought about the repercussions for Joseph if he did this, if he put her away quietly. Eventually, people are going to find out Mary's pregnant. And then the assumption at that time wouldn't have been that Mary stepped out. It would have been that Joseph slept with her, that the kid was his, even if he divorced her. And his shame 
the, the shame would then have been his. I mean, think about that. His life would have been radically changed. Her life would have been spared. She would have had the pity of people, assuming that Joseph was the bad guy. Her family could keep the dowry and get an additional payment for the wedding. And he would have to provide for the child. He was willing to do that. What does that communicate about him? What an incredibly kind, compassionate individual. Let's keep going. Matthew continues in his gospel. It says, but after Joseph had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you will give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. That last part is from the prophet Isaiah that they were bringing forward. So what's happening here? Joseph has a plan. I'm going to divorce her quietly. A plan that I think we could agree was driven by fear, maybe, because the angel addresses that in the dream. He knows what needs to be done, even if it might be costly to himself. But that plan gets interrupted by this dream. And I think we need to address something here about this dream. Most of us, if this would have happened to us, we would have passed this experience Joseph is having off as bad pizza from dinner or indigestion, right? I mean, most of us would find a way to, to rationalize this. But I mean, think about it for a moment. How many of us believe, no hands here, how many of us believe that God speaks to people in visions and dreams? Probably not many, right? I mean, we mentally assent to that possibility, but then we'd kind of go, well, that was then, this is now. God surely doesn't do that anymore. You know, we talk a lot here about our flattened spirituality, where we talk about if it can't be explained, it must not be true. But we need to be reminded that God does speak to his people in many different ways, through the Bible, through visions, through dreams, through other people, through circumstances, and even through the church. God spoke to his people then. He continues to speak to his people now. And it shouldn't be too difficult for us. After all, our faith is founded on a miraculous supernatural event of the resurrection. Dead people don't come back to life. If God can raise Jesus from the dead, how difficult then is it for God to speak to us? That seems very easy in comparison. But I wonder if in our desire for the logical and for the confirmable and for certainty and security, do we make space in our faith for divine encounters? Now, don't get me wrong. I don't think this is something we should be running after. I don't think we need to be vision seekers. I think that is a problem, and it, we can get completely off track if we do that. But in the middle of our lives, are we open to God moving? Respond when He does. Or like I have a tendency to do, when something like that happens, do you find yourself talking yourself out of it? out of the things you feel, out of the things you hear, out of the things you feel like you're supposed to do. I admit I can rationalize anything and talk myself out of it so quickly. But Joseph here has this dream, and he doesn't even rationalize himself out of it, does it? He just listens to it. And notice 
in this dream, as I said, what is he told not to fear? It's kind of interesting because most of the times when people encounter angelic type beings in the Bible, they're told not to fear the angel, not to fear the encounter, because evidently that's a scary thing to happen to you. But Joseph is told, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Notice what he what isn't said, though. He doesn't say, don't fear because this will be easy. Didn't say that. Doesn't say, fear not, because this won't have any challenges. Joseph doesn't get to wake up and feel good about this because it means easy street. In fact, this won't make his life or Mary's life any easier. It's going to be stressful. It's going to be costly. It's going to be difficult. But he is told, don't fear the stigma. Don't fear the ridicule. Don't fear the looks and the leers and the joking and the condescension. Don't kid yourself. There will be those things. There's going to be these things happening. In fact, if you look, during Jesus' ministry, he's having a confrontation one day with the Pharisees, and they're questioning who he is and defending themselves. The Pharisees are saying, look, we know who we are. We're descendants of Abraham. And in this conversation, the Pharisees say this. Look at what they say. They say, we're not illegitimate children. Now you think that's an accident? You think they didn't know Mary's reputation? They didn't, you think they didn't know how Jesus came about? They're throwing the shade at Jesus right here. They're saying, look, we know we're not the illegitimate ones. You are. They know his history. But the message of God to Joseph isn't don't fear. Don't fear doing something difficult, something undercover. Excuse me. The message of God to Joseph is don't fear doing something difficult. Don't fear doing something uncomfortable because just because something may be difficult doesn't mean God isn't in it. I feel like so much of our, my faith has always been centered around just follow Jesus and life will be easy. Anybody else feel like that? That just pray this prayer and you won't have to worry about anything ever again. That has not been my experience. Now, don't get me wrong. I've had a pretty posh life, just to be fair. I have very, I have very little to complain about. But I also know that following Jesus never meant that I got a get-out-of-jail-free card for every little thing in my life. I think we have bought into the prosperity gospel that says everything's going to be easy as long as you're with Jesus. I think Christians in Iran and China and around the world might have something to say to us on this. You see, divine encounters don't make your life easier, but they do change your life and allow you to experience God in ways that you would never have been possible to experience otherwise. But the story with Joseph is not quite done. Let's finish this up. Starting in verse 24, it says this. It says, when Joseph woke up, He did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son and gave him the name Jesus. Whatever he experienced, whatever happened to Joseph was a convincing moment in his life because we read that he woke up and he did exactly what God told him to do. Joseph obeyed. Do you think Joseph, though, ever wrestled with this decision? 
Do you think Joseph ever questioned? You see, sometimes I think we so spiritualize the Bible, we think, well, Joseph never questioned. Are you kidding me? I think Joseph was human. I think there are moments he probably thought, how do I know that was God and not just bad pizza? How do I know God really spoke to me and told me to do this? Every time, you know, I think you just have to be a parent for about two seconds before you understand the stress, the anxiety, and the doubts that come with being a parent. Will I be able to provide for my child? Can I protect them, keep them safe, help them grow into kids who know we love and follow Jesus? I'm sure Joseph experienced all these, plus the doubts of, did I really hear from God? And he had to come with the grips of what the obedience would cost him. He knew the cost was nothing, though, compared with what he was going to be getting. And he did what was right. Didn't matter how others looked at him, what others thought, what they said. He was going to help raise the one who would save the world. One scholar wrote, In so many respects, Joseph appeared to be a lawbreaker. He took his pregnant fiancée home to live with him. But to those who knew the inside story, Joseph was a righteous man, doing exactly what God required, even waiting to consummate the marriage until after the baby was born. And he did exactly what God said. He took Mary, they got married, and he named the child Jesus. Naming the child That's what parents do. That's a a suggestion that I acknowledge this child is mine. As I read this story, I'm reminded sometimes with faith, we're looking for the big and the extravagant. We're looking for impact. But you know, with Joseph, there was nothing sexy about saying yes. In fact, when you think about Joseph, as I said, we don't know a lot about him. He's actually one of the forgotten characters of the Christmas story. Outside this and a couple of small references elsewhere, he's not mentioned again. Now, in our faith, we would make this assumption. Well, which book of the Bible did he write? Not in there. What about things he said? You realize we don't have any record of anything Joseph said in our Bibles. But we do know he heard the voice of God and he said yes. You see, what I find fascinating here is that the story of Joseph is another story in a long line of examples we find in the Bible of God choosing to use humanity in his plans to rescue the world from slavery to sin, from evil and brokenness, and from ourselves. And when I think about this, I just think, why God, oh why, would you do this? And even though Joseph may not have been able to see it, he was about to play a significant role in God's redemption of the world. This is the man that's going to raise Jesus He's going to show him how to be a man in ancient Judaism. He's going to show him how to make things with his hands. He's going to take him to temple and synagogue to hear the scrolls being read of the laws and the prophets. Joseph was being invited to play a critical part of God's plan to save the world. And this happened because Joseph was willing to say yes. He was willing to obey. But in order to do this, He had to begin by overcoming the fear. Think for a moment. What does fear do to us? It causes us to 
fight sometimes. It causes flight, causes us to flee, causes all these to freeze, all these things. I mean, think about what Joseph had to do to overcome the fear, what we have to overcome. Fear is a crazy emotion, isn't it? Fear can cause us to question everything. It can cause us to question ourselves. It can cause us to question others. It can even cause us to question God. And what helps us overcome this fear is listening to God, putting ourselves in a posture of being able to hear God speak, calling us maybe to something difficult to help us to deal with our disappointments, our broken dreams, our crushed expectations. Knowing God is how we overcome fear. And I realize that sounds like such a Christian platitude, but it really is the truth. I read a quote this week from Corey Ten Boom, an artist, a writer, and she said, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. Do we know God? Then we can trust Him, even with the unknown. I asked this morning, what's your greatest fear? Think about that for just a moment. What's your greatest fear? How is that fear impacting you right now? How is it impacting the decisions you're making? How is it impacting how you're thinking about things? How you're interacting with others? How you're interacting with God? How might God be speaking to you right now in the situation? And the bigger question is, is if he is speaking, are we listening? I think if we have that fear, if we can acknowledge that fear, maybe one of the things we can do is lean into just figuring out, knowing, discovering who God is even more. Not just facts and figures about God, but knowing him relationally. And I'll tell you, if you don't know him, Find one of us and we'll, we'll introduce you to him. The story of Joseph reminds us of so many things. That God speaks and invites us to join him in his work in the world. That obeying God's call will be difficult. And that saying yes may not lead to worldwide fame or accolades. But it leads to experiencing God's presence. It also shows us that when God speaks... He gives us what we need. Sometimes, though, it may not be when we need it. Sometimes God speaks and we need it later, and we just have to hold on to it. So I ask you this morning, do you need to hear from God? Are you going through your own fear? Do you read the news and you just get the anxiousness, the heart rate up, and the queasiness in the stomach, and you just think, I need to deal with all this? Or maybe it's something personal that you're going through. If so, if you find yourself there, let me encourage you. Pause. Just for a moment. Breathe. Wait. And listen. Because I believe that God still speaks. And he has words of peace for us through the fear and the anxiety that we're experiencing. And then when he speaks... Obey. Follow. Let's pray.